ask your blessing today upon the message of this hour. Amen. Please be seated. I need to give you a little bit of context for the opening story. When I was young, you all know, you've heard me talk enough about my good friend Ed and his wife Sue. Um, one of the things we did all through the 70s and maybe even a little bit into the 80s was nearly every year we went to Hershey, Pennsylvania. And the re reason we went to, Hershey, to Hershey, Pennsylvania was because there was a car show every year, just about this time of year. And we were looking for parts to old cars that we were restoring. In particular, the one that stands out to me is we hunted forever for a running board for a 1939, 1939 Chevrolet Master Deluxe Sedan. Pretty common car, actually, but their running boards were kind of hard to come by. But we went there every year. And one of the things that happened at the Hershey, and they had one in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, as well, one of the things that happened there was they had the big car show there, all the parts, you know, flea market set up. But people also brought their old and antique motorcycles. Okay, so you need to know that. I grew up sharing with my best friend a deep interest in old cars, and in particular, old motorcycles. I've been promising my friend Ed that we were going to watch a movie together. It's not something we probably have ever done. Maybe, I, I, I think we watched The Sandlot together years ago when he liked that. Never watched a movie together and I can't find movies I like. But I ran into this movie, which some of you have heard me talk about already, and it's called The World's Fastest Indian. Uh, I went and actually bought the movie because I liked it so much. Now, I'm not recommending that you buy the movie, but I am going to tell you that it's a really good movie for somebody like me, and I knew my friend Ed, at least I thought my friend Ed would like it. That is Burt Monroe's 1920 Indian motorcycle. It's an Indian scout. Now, you're looking at it, and you're thinking, wow, that thing doesn't look like a motorcycle. Well, here is what it looked like when it came out of the factory. If you bought that in 1920 or 21, where they produced that motorcycle, it came with a top speed of 55 miles an hour. It had a 650cc engine on it. And Burt Monroe bought it. This man was born in 1899. He bought it as a young man. And as he went through life, he began to change it, to modify it. It ultimately turned out looking, that's the interior look at his motorcycle. It actually looked like something like that. And that's him out at Bonneville in the, in the sand you know, pit out there with what he finally produced. And get this. When he got done modifying it and he was ready to take it to the Bonneville flats, that 1920 or 21 Indian Scout motorcycle it was the equivalent of about 950 cc's now. And after he took everything off and did all the stuff that he did, he set a world land speed record with it. And get this, that was in 1957. He was 47 years old when he did it. And that record still holds today. 
He actually took that piece of machinery right there up over 200 miles an hour. Just over 200. Can you imagine? And the record still stands. So we sat down for a couple of hours, Ed and Sue and I, and we watched this movie, The World's Fastest Indian. And the next day, I thought, you know, they just humored me. They didn't really like that movie. What I saw in it and what I appreciated about it, they didn't get. So I called Ed. And I said, Ed, tell me the truth. I said, I just want to know, you know, what did you think about that movie? And he said, I couldn't stop thinking about it all day. That's what he said. He said, I liked it a whole lot. Years ago, a member of our church at that time um, in another place came to my house at Christmas. And he's probably going to watch this because I know he watches. But he handed me a movie. He said, you got to watch this movie. And it was a, either in VHS or DVD, probably VHS back then. And some of you will know this movie. It was called, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's got George Clooney in it. Okay, he gave me that movie. He says, you got to watch this. It's a gift. Take it and watch it. I watched about four minutes of that thing and turned it off, and I've never watched it since. It just, it wasn't, I could tell from the beginning, it wasn't my thing. So often what you and I expect, particularly from others, that kind of thought right there, what we expect. I want you to keep that in mind as we listen to the, med to the message this morning. Ed, was the movie what you expected? Yeah, I couldn't quit thinking about it all day. Joel, did you like, oh, brother, where art thou? Well, you know, um, I'm going to get to that. Luke tells us a little bit about that story we read today. He tells us about Zacchaeus, and we all know that story, don't we? we tell us, he tells us that there's some things we need to pick up from the story, and they're usually picked up in the sermons that we hear. We hear things like, from this story, what do you do when you have the problem of being rich? Because Zacchaeus was rich. Why does Jesus all of the time identify himself with the worst people possible? This man was a tax collector. And what do you do when faith is placed in Jesus and you discover a new way of living as Zacchaeus did? Let's take this a verse at a time, and I'll be quick with the verse by verse, except for when we get to one verse. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Understand that Jesus has come to Jericho, and it doesn't look like he's planning on stopping. He's passing through. And behold, there's a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. He was not just any friendly tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. He's the guy that's over all the other guys. And this means that not only is Zacchaeus getting everybody's money, he's also getting a little kickback from the understudies, from the people that are actually hands-on taking this. Zacchaeus is sitting in a great position. And isn't it interesting that Luke tells us, and he was rich. It was so good, this job of chief tax collector, that he was rich. To give you an understanding of that word rich, because we all, we all look at that word differently, don't we? To understand what it means in this context, you first got to understand that yes, Zacchaeus was materially loaded. 
But you also have to have an understanding of that word rich because Greek is very specific. And the word that's used there is the word flow. His riches flowed like a river. The material wealth that Zacchaeus was enjoying seemed to be like a fountain, if you would, or a constant flow of wealth to him. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and imagine that you're Zacchaeus' next-door neighbor. And you're looking over the fence one day, and you see he's got that new car. And then your, your eye spies out that him and some of his good friends are there in that fancy swimming pool he's got. And what goes through your mind is that technically the car and the pool partially belong to you. Because this man's been stealing from you forever. And what makes it worse than anything else is <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. If you really step back and look at this scripture today, you would know this. Most of Zacchaeus' neighbors, contemporaries at that time, would look at us today and be shocked because all of us know this story, don't we? I mean, as I read it this morning, you probably had the thought go through your mind, we're going to hear this one again? I told you, don't expect until you get there. They'd be shocked. You mean that lousy tax collector, chief tax collector that did us wrong for that long? You mean to tell me that they're still talking about him some 2,000 years later? And you mean to tell me that every kid knows who he is? Well, yeah, that's just about how it works. And Zacchaeus is looking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. I'll just say this to you, Zacchaeus was a short guy. So he runs ahead and climbs up a tree because Jesus is about to walk through there. It's pretty simple, pretty self-explanatory. And when Jesus comes to the place, he looks up in that tree, that sycamore tree at Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I intend to stay at your house today. No, I don't intend to. Notice the word must. I must come to your house today. So Zacchaeus hurries down, and he comes down, and he receives him. Now understand what that means. He welcomed him. He welcomed him into his home. And how did he do that? He did that joyfully. Lazarus is genuinely happy that Jesus had to come to his house on this day. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the house as a guest of a man who we all know to be a sinner. A couple things you need to notice in this verse. They all grumbled. That, that word all, if you got a dozen, it means all 12. If you got 15 million, it means all 15 million. In the Greek language, it's encompassing. It means what it says. Everybody is grumbling. Stop for a minute and understand grumbling. It doesn't mean that they were whispering. They were saying it loud enough for anybody that wanted to to hear it. You know, the, it, just yesterday I had to go to the grocery store. Do you remember at the start of the pandemic, some grocery stores put the arrows down the aisles? Now, 
I don't mean at the checkout. I mean in the actual aisleway. So as you went through the store, you had to go a certain direction. I don't pay attention to that rule anymore, but apparently some people do. I'm in that grocery store, and I've got a list, and I'm going where I know things are, back and forth, back and forth. And I got into a jam where two people were coming at me at the same time, blocking my aisle. They were going the wrong way because the arrows are gone now. And this one gentleman let me know what he thought of that. It, it wasn't kind. They grumbled. They could easily be heard. But understand this about Jesus. People were always grumbling about him. In this same gospel in Luke 5 and verse 30, the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus' disciples and they said, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In Luke 15 it says, The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They said, This man sits with sinners and receives food with them. What is it about the people of God and this notion of grumbling? They say, Joe, what are you talking about? Well, I want you to stop and just remember, because the root of the word that is used by Luke in this passage goes back all the way back to the Exodus. Can you remember when the people in the Exodus couldn't find water? Here's what it says. The people grumbled against Moses and said, what shall we drink? Please understand, it says against Moses, but it was against God. The very next chapter, they're hungry. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. You've brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, whole assembly, with hunger. And again, understand, they're directing it at Moses and Aaron, but they're grumbling against God. And here's what I want you to see, because you're expecting today a message that you've heard before from Luke about Zacchaeus. I want you to understand this grumbling piece before I go to the next verse. What I want you to see is that in the Exodus, in the Exodus, the people of God had already experienced God's grace. Are you with me? They had been in bondage. They had been slaves in Egypt, and God set them free. You would think somebody would smile, put on a, a, a cheerleader suit, and say, yay, God. Huh. The minute they step out and set foot on the territory, headed to the promised land, the first thing they think to do is to grumble because there's not enough water. I mean, the God that had set them free crossed them over a river and was leading them to a land that flowed with milk and honey. Probably should have been trusted, but they forgot. The God who had allowed them to eat in bondage was going to feed them on the trip. But somehow or another, they found a reason to complain. And here in the town of Jericho, as Jesus decides to come to the town and walk through the streets, he's heading, going to pass through, they forgot who they were. They were God's chosen people. It'll be interesting to see in a minute that when Zacchaeus converts, when he repents, when he goes back, Jesus is going to say, well, he's a Jew. Everybody here was. They were all benefactors of God's magnificent grace in their life. 
And here they are as Jesus walks through, and they're grumbling. Zacchaeus stood up at his house, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Two things I want you to see right here. Zacchaeus has accumulated a lot of stuff. Can I tell you something? I, I don't know the particulars about anybody here. Some of you I know a little bit more than others, but we all have a lot of stuff, don't we? I mean, it doesn't matter who you are these days. You got a lot of stuff. Zacchaeus had accumulated a lot of stuff. And I think this passage this morning is telling us something about our stuff. Very often, I'm not saying all the time, I'm not giving you an ultimatum, but I'm going to tell you that very often an identifier of our spiritual condition has a lot to do with how we identify with our stuff. Jesus said in Luke 14, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I tell you something, I kind of like that motorcycle I got. I, I kind of enjoy a few of the things that I got. Listen to what he just said. Renounce all that you have. You see, what Jesus wants us to understand, folks, is not that you can't have it, that we can't have it. What he wants us to understand is what Zacchaeus, I think, came to a conclusion about. All the stuff really doesn't matter until you have this relationship with Christ settled. Remember that rich young ruler that came to Jesus? What do I got to do? And Jesus says, there's one thing you're lacking. I mean, he told him, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that. And Jesus says, there's one thing that you lack. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. And we all know that he walked away because he had so much stuff. The one thing that was, according to Jesus, that's holding this guy back is his things. I want you to look, the second thing I want you to see here is Zacchaeus' attitude towards what he's accumulated and how he accumulated it. You know, we, we talk in church a lot about repentance, don't we? I talk about repentance a lot up here. In the Jewish mindset, and let me just tell you, they have it right. In the Jewish mindset, repentance in other words, reconciliation always includes repentance and restitution. You with me? It always includes repentance along with restitution. And in the book of Leviticus, chapter 5 and verse 16, the law, the Jewish law says this. He shall make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy place and shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest will make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he will be forgiven. There's other places in the law where you can read that. And what I just read to you says this. Restitution in the Jewish mindset requires not only the re restoring of what was taken, but an additional one-fifth. Can I tell you what Zacchaeus said here? 
He said, half of what I've accumulated, all my interest, everything that I've put together and have accumulated all these days, half of what I have is going to the poor. And then he said, and those that I have defrauded or stolen from or taken when I shouldn't have, they're going to get back fourfold. So Zacchaeus is not restoring at a rate of 100% plus one-fifth or 20%. He is restoring fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Remember what I told you a minute ago? All these Jews that are murmuring and complaining, they were benefactors of being Jews, of being God's people. And what Jesus just said is, Zacchaeus got it. It's not just in name now, it's in heart. He's done what he needs to do. He's, go, he, he's come to a changed place. Salvation has come to this house. He is a son of Abraham. And then Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Church, this is from Isaiah. This is Isaiah's imagery here that Jesus is sharing. The seeking and the saving of the lost. Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man seeking. And Zacchaeus as being the lost one that is now found. You'll remember that, that in Luke chapter 4, we, we look when you study the Gospel of Luke, you see the keystone or the major theme of Jesus' ministry in the book of Luke in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, where it says this, and it's Jesus speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If there's anything at all that I want you to see today, I want you to listen to that last verse. Because Jesus is telling us in this verse that he has done exactly what his father expected him to do. If anything, and again for a minute, I want you to remember, did you really like the movie? If anything, he has exceeded God's expectations. You know, we hear this all the time, don't we? Past performance is no guarantee of future results. You hear that, don't you? We look at the story of Zacchaeus and we think it's so wonderful that we teach it in Sunday school over and over and over again. It's a story that has to be taught. We have learned songs about it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. We make sure that our kids know that song. This little man who climbs a tree to find Jesus, what could you not love about that story? Jesus says, come down. I'm going to your house. Zac Zacchaeus changes. He even repents. He even restores what everyone's owed. What could you not love about this story? We ought to emphasize it. We ought to celebrate it. But it's the part of the story that we don't emphasize that I want to cause problems with you with today. Back in that seventh verse, when they saw it, they grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Remember what I told you. The entire theme for Jesus is Luke 4, 18 and 19. 
anoint, proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim the liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Zacchaeus' church was rich, but he was more poor than he was rich, and here's why. He didn't know Jesus. Jesus came to give good news to those poor. Zacchaeus was captive, believe it or not, captive to his own greed. All he ever thought about was, how can I get more and more by taking from other people? And Jesus came to help him see that he could be set free from that captivity. Zacchaeus was blinded by his wealth. All he could see was what he could get. And Jesus came to help him see what he was missing. God, forgiveness, right relationship with God, right relationship with neighbors, a right relationship with money, for crying out loud. And Zacchaeus was oppressed, hated because of who he was. And Jesus came to set him free from that and introduce him to a love that would never fail him. And the people, listen up close, the people that should have been cheering and celebrating the very fact that Jesus has, went, Jesus has gone to Zacchaeus' house are the people who are complaining about it. They're murmuring about it. They're grumbling about it. Grace has moved into the neighborhood and hatred declared it to be a bad neighbor. You've heard this passage in the book of Luke. I'm going to read you something that's a little bit off the point this morning, but you'll understand why when I'm done. In Luke 7, 33 and 34, it says this, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he's got a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Remember that woman who came to the Pharisee's house and washed Jesus' feet with her hair and, and poured it all out that she had so she could anoint him? Remember what the Pharisee who invited Jesus to that house said? When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of a woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. You know, here's the thing, church, that I want you to see. This crowd that's out there grumbling because Jesus has gone into Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector's house. This crowd that is so disturbed that a man would go and eat with sinners and tax collectors. This very crowd, every one of them, all of them, remember what I said? They all grumbled. The thing that I want you to see about them is this, church. Even if Jesus had gone to their very home, they would have found something to grumble about. They would have found something to complain about. You go through the book of Luke seven times, you'll find a variation of this phrase recounted. This man eats with tax collectors, wine bibbers, drunks, and sinners, and he ought to know better. And strangely enough, the people that say that are the very people that should have known better. His people. You see, often while Zacchaeus was accumulating things, those around him were accumulating their thoughts. 
And if you give people time to accumulate their, their bad thoughts, eventually those bad thoughts turn into words, and you can hear them in the grocery store, and you can hear them down the street, and you can hear them all over the place while the grumbling goes on. And eventually those words that have come from their thoughts will become actions. Do you remember, now I'm going to take you down an alley you didn't expect. Do you remember Jonah and the whale? You know that, right? Because it's just like Zacchaeus. It's the story we have to tell. It makes great flannel board Sunday school material. It's great fodder for kids. That's why we all know that story. That's why we all love that story. But when you get past the fact that Jonah, who was supposed to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent, has been swallowed up in the belly of a whale, and then... He finds himself three days in the belly of the whale, and then he spit out on the beach. And you find when he gets to Nineveh, the prophet of God in the place where God wanted him to be, declaring what God wanted him to say, repent. You'd think that when they repent, Jonah celebrates. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's not what happened. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to Nineveh, and he did not do it. This displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, isn't this what I said? This is why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Now, Lord, please take my life for me, for it's better for me to die than to live. See what he's saying? The people have repented. They've done exactly what God wanted them to do. And the person that should have been the most rejoicing about it has said, I'd rather die than wash this. Go to another place. Remember that prodigal son? He, he takes, that young boy takes his father's money and runs off to the arcade. No better yet, he runs off to Las Vegas and he spends it, pardon me, on hookers and hooch, right? And lo and behold, what happens? He has a party to the point that he runs out of money and he has to eat with the pigs. He finally decides to return to his father. And as he comes back home, and the father sees him, he gets the shoes, he gets the robe, he gets the ring, he runs out and greets his son. He puts the coat on him, he puts the ring on his finger and the shoes on his feet. He says, kill the fatted calf. And they begin to celebrate. And the older son, who's been there all along, the older son, who's been there all along, says, what's, what's that noise? I hear music. The servant says, your brother's come home. Your father's killed the fattened calf. He's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And he wouldn't go in. You know, we love that story of the prodigal son until the prodigal comes home, I think. When the father welcomes him back home, when he's forgiven and back in the fold, we realize that the younger brother has come back and he's changed and the older brother who was always home really was never at home in the first place. 
And what makes us most upset about this story is we realize that all too often we're the older brother. In all of these stories, Zacchaeus, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with that ointment, Jonah and the whale, the prodigal son. In these stories and in many of the stories of the Bible, God's grace, listen close, God's grace fails to meet someone's expectation. And it's usually the people who claim to know God's grace best. As Zacchaeus walks through town with Jesus at his side and into his house and closes the door to eat with Jesus, the Jews are outside the door. People that God loves just as much as anybody else, grumbling because he did that. This next slide is not your bottom line. It's just a a point I want to make with you. God's past performance is always a guarantee of God's future results. Let me be sure you understand this. With God, nothing is off the table. Not even the chief tax collector. With God, nothing has changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did then, he'll do now. He is still setting the captives free. He's still giving sight to the blind. He's declaring the year of the Lord's favor moment by moment, and it's all good. And this crowd and the story of Zacchaeus has missed something. Listen close to the next few sentences, please. Jesus saw Zacchaeus' stuff because Zacchaeus let Jesus in the house. And all that stuff was Zacchaeus' problem. The well-manicured lawn and the lawn service that took care of it paid for courtesy of the neighbors. The beautiful home and all of his greed that had brought him to this place paid for by the neighbors. The cars, the boats, the motorcycles, the big screen TV, all that stuff Jesus saw for one reason and one reason only. Zacchaeus let him in. You see, Zacchaeus was vulnerable enough to let Jesus see what he'd done and what he was dealing with. He was vulnerable enough to let the grace of God not only come, and this is key, but to grow in his house. What do I mean by that? We often want to say, well, I'm a Christian now. I've I've received God's grace. But then we live our lives in such a way that that grace never grows. God's extended it to us. We're his chosen people now. But we're not so sure we want to extend it to everybody else. We're not so sure we want to rejoice when God extends it to anybody else. We're not so sure that what's so good for us should be as good for them. But Zacchaeus let God's grace not only come, He began to let it grow. And now here's your bottom line. Don't let your neighbor's open house become your closed door. What do I mean by that? This crowd, who were God's people, they allowed 
the movement of God in Zacchaeus' life to become a pole in their own eyeball. They allowed the splinter that God had removed from Zacchaeus' eye to become a log in their own. It's exactly what happened with Jonah. It's precisely what happened with the Pharisee when that woman came in and, and anointed Jesus' feet. It's what happened with the crowd when they wanted to stone that woman to death that was taken in adultery. It's precisely what happens again and again. We want what God can do for us, but we're not so sure that it'll be okay for everybody. And when that open house, that open house at Zacchaeus' place was revealed for what it was, God's grace coming to him. Suddenly, that open house became their closed door to God doing anything in them. Don't let your neighbor's stuff become a blinder to your own. Now before I finish, I want to say this to you. Some of us are not so very well off to say that, well, I'm like Zacchaeus. We would say, you know, Joel, I don't have much of this world's material stuff, and you'd be missing the point. We all have stuff. Some of our stuff is emotional. Some of our stuff is spiritual. Some of our stuff is relational. Some of our stuff is your stuff and some of our stuff is my stuff. We've all got stuff. We allow the fear of tomorrow to steal the joy of the Lord. We allow the concerns of the day to steal the wonder that this is the day the Lord has made and we should be glad in it. We just allow again and again our stuff to get in the way. Zacchaeus opened his house up and said, Jesus, here's my stuff. You're going to have to do something with it. And Jesus did. All of those neighbors just grumbled and murmured and complained because he was. 